This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, April 14th, 2019, Episode 70, Concerning a Coastal Conflict and Two Visions of the Virgin. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. After our little trip to 5th century Ireland last month, it's time to return to some chronicle marvels and murders. So once again we turn to an old faithful, the Lanarkost Chronicle. Somehow it's been two years since we last dipped into Lanarkost, a fact which literally startled me when I looked it up. And that also means it's probably worth reintroducing this favorite text of ours. The Lanarkost Chronicle is preserved in a single manuscript that was part of the famous library of Sir Robert Cotton. So, we know it was in Cotton's collection in the 17th century. Where it came from before that can only be a matter of speculation. It's called the Lanarkost Chronicle because the latter portions of the text show a particular interest in the affairs of Lanarkost Priory in Cumbria, situated in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall, but it also shows strong evidence of having been written by a Franciscan friar, who is not who you would expect to find at an Augustinian priory, so there remains some debate about the ultimate source of the text. And there are also clear signs of two different authors contributing, uh, one who wrote about events from 1201 to 1297 and was likely writing in the late 1290s, and then another who added a continuation of the chronicle to carry it up to the year 1346. And, as usual in those kind of conditions, you have further questions about the interaction between the later writer and the earlier text. Have they merely appended to it? Or were they creating their own book, borrowing from this earlier source, and quite possibly revising and reworking that material themselves? The manuscript we have is not the original production, the autograph. So, then you have to consider how much the copyist might have made their own contributions to the material. Odds are that the copyist was a canon at Lanarkost, using a written chronicle by a Franciscan as their base text, but then editing it and adding to it. There have been many debates over these layers of authorship. Uh, A.G. Little, in 1916, made a case for actually identifying a specific individual, one Friar Richard of Durham, as the pre-1297 author, um, but it's all a somewhat tenuous case. The important thing that we do know is that the Chronicle was written by authors with direct knowledge of the events and politics of the English-Scottish borderlands in the 13th and 14th centuries, which are pretty eventful time for the relations between those two nations. That's the time of the Scottish Wars of Independence, and the Lanarkost Chronicle is a valuable document for historians of Scotland. But, as we've seen in earlier episodes of this show, The chroniclers of this text also have a strong inclination to include various marvels and curiosities alongside the more conventional history. Lanarkost really gives William of Malmesbury a run for his money in this regard. Uh, This is very much a chronicle in the vein of a modern walking tour guide. Sure, they're going to hit the major historical points and make sure you feel like you're receiving an educational experience, but they also know what you really want to hear is all the lurid gossip and the ghost stories and so they deliver both forms of history. Our excerpt today is a great example of precisely that. It opens with an account of a political conflict, though being sure to include some gruesome details, and then it segues directly into two miraculous vision narratives. 
We open with an account of some terrible things done by Charles of Valois, the brother of Philip IV, King of France. And actually, before we hear from the Lanercost Chronicle on this event, uh, we have another brief account of it from a famous chronicle. Um, this would be the Flores Historiarum, or Flowers of History, begun by Matthew Paris, uh, though we'll be hearing from the continuation that was added after Matthew's death in 1259. I'll share this version first, and then you can see how our Lanercost chronicler, perhaps Richard of Durham, uh, how he treats the same thing. Here it is from the Flowers of History, as translated by C.D. Young. Anno Domini 1293. A great dissension arose between the English and the Normans, for the natives of the sea coast of Normandy, in the violence of their rage or ignorance, slew some of the English by different kinds of death, and hung others to the yards of the mass of the ship, together with some dogs, at which the barons of the sink ports were indignant, and speedily equipped their ships with all necessary naval appointments to avenge the injury done to the English. And passing over the swelling back of the sea with a numerous fleet, they slew with the sword their enemies who came to encounter them, and threw their carcasses into the sea without respect to their rank, and did not let one single survivor escape and brought back their vessels and baggage and wines and other necessaries to their own homes and all the contents of their ships, dividing the ships and their spoils among themselves, of which spoils the King of England would not accept anything, on the ground of not having given his sanction to their design, because they had done what they had done without his command. Therefore the French, being alarmed and thrown into confusion, went to the Lord their King, entreating his aid. And accordingly, ambassadors are sent between the two kings to treat of the establishment of peace, but the end could not be expected yet, unless kingdom should rise against kingdom at the instigation of Charles, the brother of the King of France, a man of great nobleness and influence. However, by sea, the English forces prevailed. So, we have some gruesome details here. The hanging of dogs gets a little bit more development in the Lanercost Chronicle, uh, but seems to have been a memorable image. The editor of the first print edition of the Chronicle, Joseph Stevenson, provides a note remarking that there is a state document of the time in which this crime is charged against the Normans, and there is a marginal illustration of a gallows on which hang an alternating line of men and dogs. But aside from some of the details of local violence, our first historian takes a rather reserved position. They consider the event as it relates to the delicate balance of international politics, practically sympathizing with the difficult situation of the two kings, who don't really want to get into a war, but have to address this unauthorized conflict between their respective subjects. Our Lanercost chronicler offers a perspective that seems much more on the ground, so to speak. Now, this conflict takes place on the English Channel, far from the Scottish border, so it's not likely our author was an eyewitness or anything, but they have a much more judgmental and partisan view of the conflict and who the villains are. Before we proceed into the Lanercost Chronicle, though, uh, we have one bit of terminology to define that will be relevant to our first vision narrative, uh, and that is the word oxgang. What an oxgang is, is simple enough. It's just an eighth of a caricature. Okay, moving on. 
Or, wait, we need a bit more clarification? Uh, all right. A caricat is a unit of land area defined as the amount of land that could be plowed by a team of eight oxen in one year. And if you're looking at just one of those oxen, you're looking at an eighth of the work, and that's the ox gang, the ox's going or journey. Uh, gang there has its old sense of walking or traveling. It's connected to the verb go and going. The gang in ox gang is the same one that's in gangway. Uh, gang as a group of people, or as a work team of animals, which you might have assumed an ox gang was if you were like me, um, this sense of gang has a somewhat uncertain etymology, but it very probably comes from the same movement-based gang. It's kind of literally fellow travelers, people who go around together. That's a gang. Anyway, ox gang and caricat are intriguing to me because they are contextual units of measurement. They don't describe an absolute value or quantity. They yield different quantities depending on local variables. And this is historically true. Caricates varied in size depending on the quality of the soil and difficulty of the terrain and the preferred plowing practices. A caricate on a stony farm in the Midlands would consist of a smaller acreage, acres being a fixed unit, uh, than one in the fertile fields of Kent. We have some units that seem similar today, like horsepower, which was originally defined as the amount of work a horse could perform, or more accurately, how many draft horses a single mechanical engine was capable of replacing at a task, like turning a mill wheel. But with horsepower, engine maker James Watt quite quickly redefined it according to an idealized standard horse and its capabilities, thus making the unit fixed rather than relative to the abilities of local horses or the circumstances of a particular task. The horse in horsepower was transformed from a variable to an abstracted but absolute number. Horsepower is also a bit different from ox gang because there you're making a comparison between like units, work performed by a horse translated to work performed by a machine. Ox gang is weirder because it's converting work into area. It's more like measuring a road trip not in miles or even hours, but in tanks of gas, and doing so while understanding that the same distance will have different tanks worth in different cars and under different conditions. A two-tank trip is vastly different in miles between a Prius and a Humvee, and in city traffic versus highway miles. This is a very human way of measuring something, uh, and of course, it's also frustratingly hard to incorporate into systems based on assumptions of standardization, which is why you don't really find units like this in the world today. In the Middle Ages, you do already see some movement to do the same thing that happens to horsepower and fix a standard universal caricate size, especially as land becomes subject to more and more legal record-keeping and charters and deeds where stable measurements are more important. But for the most part, what happens is, rather than the standardized definition taking over, the whole caricate ox gang system drops out in favor of simple acreage. Just for reference, in the medieval period, you'd find caricates usually ranging from 120 to 180 acres. And so the three ox gangs that come up in our story today represent somewhere around 60 acres of farmland. One last quick definition, uh, neustria, which we'll hear in the first sentence of our chronicle excerpt, is just another name for Normandy. And let's get to that 
first sentence. This is from the account of the year 1293 from the Lanercost Chronicle, as translated by Sir Herbert Maxwell. year, war broke out at Dieppe in Neustria, when the citizens of that place inhumanly attacked our people of the sink ports with slaughter and rapine at the insistence of an agitator. Nay, and what is more, they were encouraged by the ambition of their prince, to wit, Charles, brother of the King of France, who had conceived hatred for our people because he could not supplant his own brother in that kingdom, whom it was King Edward's policy to support in this district. So, in order that he might make more evident the venom which he had conceived, he subjected pilgrims and scholars to many afflictions, even putting some poor people to death on the gallows, and hanging beside them live dogs to which he likened them. And when these hostilities had grown to such a pitch that the Sinkport's people attacked the inhabitants of Dieppe with sword and fire, the King of France issued an order in council that all scholars from our side of the sea, Scots as well as English, should clear out of France. The same edict closed Paris to the Burgesses coming from beyond the sea, but this was not carried into effect. He even dared, bad Christian that he was, to consult a soothsayer as to what harm might happen from the ill will now engendered against England, and when the soothsayer replied that nothing could prevail against that kingdom so long as it was under the protection of a lady of great majesty and a noble ecclesiastic, it is said that he put him to death by way of fee. No wise man may entertain a doubt that the diabolic art indicated in metaphor that lady who, according to John of Damascus, is ruler of all things, being mother of the creator, in whose honor I insert here something which happened at that time, which I received on the oath of a religious man in the parish of Isgarth near Richmond. A certain countryman of blameless life worshipped the Blessed Mother of God with devout mind and was for seven years or more under the spiritual guidance of the aforesaid person. Certain fellows, banded together and burning with cupidity, robbed him of three ox gangs of his farm, thinking that he was helpless in his own defense. Deeply distressed by his misfortune, he prayed devoutly to his protectress and brought an action at York against the evildoers. Having obtained little success there because the palms of the court had been well greased, and preferring to die rather than be beaten, he took his case to be pled in London. Arriving there with much difficulty and with scant means, he laid his weary limbs to rest in an empty and cold house at the end of a street on this side of London, incessantly and with tears imploring the Queen of Mercy that she would deign to have compassion upon him in his just cause, vowing that thenceforward he would always distribute a yearly allowance of wheat among the poor in her honor at the Feast of the Purification, which was then at hand. And when sleep had wholly deserted him because of the emptiness of his stomach, the anxiety of his mind, and the narrowness of his bed, the Holy Mother of God appeared to the disconsolate wretch, as he often used to swear, shining with dazzling brilliancy and attended by two companions. She was encompassed by marvelous lights, intellectual, he used to call them, without doubt the angelical powers, for as such they were revealed to the simple rustic as they stood around the Queen of Virgins. 
addressing the countrymen, Thou hast put thy trust in me, said she, and behold, tomorrow, through my aid, thy land shall be restored to thee. Moreover, thou shalt return home whole and unhindered, so that thou shalt not even bruise thy foot with traveling. All that the mother of the word of God promised was fulfilled straightway. And one night, after he had returned home, the mother of consolation deigned once more to appear to him as he was quietly sleeping. In like manner, said she, as thou seest that I have performed what I promised and quickly attended to thy prayer, so do thou firmly believe me ready to attend to all those who invoke me with sincere affection. This statement is in accord with what the saints have declared about the Mother of Mercy, in whom the Savior, coming from on high, rested bodily during nine months in the bowels of mercy for our salvation. But I will add yet another instance bearing upon this matter, which happened to take place some thirty years ago or more. A few years ago, there was in London a certain vicar of the Church of Dalmeny, Sir James by name, who used to discourse to many persons what he had experienced of the Blessed Virgin. In his youth, as he said, he was a scholar of Cambridge, sharing board and bed with a comely English youth who was called William Wilde, because he was not only playful and tuneful, but also too much given to wantonness. James used to worship the glorious Virgin in a devout spirit, attending her office, exercising himself at her services in songs and prayers, and, as he trusted that she would obtain pardon for him, calling her, in the usual phrase, the Mother of Mercy. Now, one night, as he was reposing beside his comrade aforesaid, he seemed to be hurried off towards the east by two malignant monsters who were about to cast him into a vast fire which he saw before him. Looking back, however, he beheld a company of the blessed coming like priests in exceedingly white raiment and with shining faces, one of whom cried in a loud voice, Bring him back whom you are carrying away, that he may be examined. It is not justice that one who has not been sentenced by the judge should suffer punishment. Returning then with his enemies, he was taken in charge by the Senate of Saints, and was brought trembling before a handsome and dignified man of lofty stature, whom he understood to be a protector from his tormentors, who were vociferously accusing him. Then, after one of the adversaries had declaimed from a long roll, covered with black characters, setting forth all his misdeeds, however many, in an exact manner, the just judge asked him whether he wished to say anything in his defense. James, through remorse of conscience, made no answer at all, whereupon the malicious persecutor exclaimed, Just judge, do not take from us him whom thou perceivest to be rightly our prisoner. But the creator of man, turning graciously towards the prostrate James, said, Look around carefully, and see whether among my attendants there be one who may be willing to offer intercession for thee. He, casting his eyes over the whole host, which, as he said, seemed to consist only of male beings, could not see her whom he most earnestly longed for, the Mother of Mercy. Straightway, the dire sentence was pronounced, and he was being violently dragged away to cruel torments, when, in the background, he beheld again a choir of virgins, brightly shining and rejoicing with gladsome praise, of whom the mistress more refulgent than the rest, commanded the party that was leaving to halt. When he beheld her, he humbly invoked the Queen of Mercy, imploring that she would deign to pity him in such dire extremity, 
reminding her of the hope, devotion, and labor he had given to her service. Thou hast incurred a sentence, quoth the mother of clemency to him, which cannot be revoked. What wouldst thou that I should do for thee? O lady, said he, if more may not be done, help me in this that I may be given the libel of the accusation against me. The Empress of Heaven, assenting immediately, laid hold of the adversary and, seizing from him the document, restored it to the hands of the petitioner, saying, It is now necessary that thou delete what is written. In all this, he moved his body so uneasily, trembling, sweating, and muttering, as to awaken and cause no little terror to the comrade beside whom he lay, who failed to rouse him from his dreadful moaning either by poking him or shouting at him, until the aforesaid vision having come to an end, he, James, like one returning from a great distance, began to ask his comrade where he was or whence he had come. At length, when his comrade told him how he had been behaving in his sleep, James then and there described to him in turn all that he had seen, exhibiting in his fist as testimony the very role which the virgin had seized from the demon, though he would never show to anybody what was written therein. Also, he started immediately at daybreak on the morrow, and, confessing himself with tears, obliterated all that Satan had written. Thenceforward, he practiced such extreme penitence by denying his flesh all indulgence and keeping fasts that the austerity of his life caused religious men to blush. So, there's yet another run of incidents from the Lanercost Chronicle. Charles of Valois continued to be a bit of a political troublemaker throughout his life, a king's brother very keen on securing a throne of his own, pressing claims in Aragon, Germany, and the crusader states of the Latin Empire of Constantinople, but without much success. However, not long after his death, his son took the French throne as Philip VI, marking the end of the Capetian monarchy and the start of the rule of the House of Valois, which endured until 1589, when the Bourbons took over. At the time of Philip's succession in 1328, one of his chief rivals for the French crown was the English Edward III, and while it took about a decade to actually kick off properly, this dispute did lead to the Hundred Years' War, and those two monarchs were less inclined than their predecessors to try to tamp down on cross-channel violence. As for the visions of the Virgin Mary, it's interesting that both stories rather prominently feature trials. I'm not particularly aware of Mary as a patron specifically of plaintiffs or defendants uh, as a major part of her saintly portfolio, but it certainly does fit with the very strong theme of Mary as an intercessor for humanity. This side is clearest in the second vision, where the trial is a spiritual one, and we'll get to that story in a minute. The first vision of the farmer whose land was taken from him, um, this vision figures Mary as a kind of intercessor within the systems of human law. She's going to help the farmer out of his actual lawsuit. Though we might note that we don't actually see her do anything specific, she basically just appears and says, I'll take care of it, and then the farmer apparently wins his case. As an aside, uh, one little linguistic observation about this story. Uh, Our translator gives us the phrase, the palms of the court had been well greased, 
Uh, this idiom is a literal translation of the Latin, propter manus injunctas. Now, I've looked online and everything I find says that the phrase to grease someone's palm comes from the 16th century. And maybe that's true for its appearance in English, uh, but this example certainly suggests that a form of the idiom was in use at least 200 years earlier. Unless there's really a case to be made that this Latin is about anointing their palms and is a metaphor for ritual cleansing or sacrifice and is etymologically independent of getting axle grease on your hands, which is the generally proposed origin of greasing palms. But I would be shocked if there weren't some kind of continuity in this idiom. Anyway, back to the story. Mary's follow-up appearance to the farmer is also a bit odd. In the typical miracle story pattern, this would be where she says, I helped you. Why haven't you followed through on the vow you made to me? Or just, I helped you, now go do such and such. There is often a quid pro quo in medieval miracle stories. On the show, we've had a couple of William of Norwich stories that do exactly this. But in this story, she really just appears to build her brand up. <laughs> she says, See, I answered your prayers just like I answer prayers of everyone who asks me with sincere affection. The end. Uh, we don't even get the expected, now go forth and tell everyone. Um, maybe that is so obviously implied that our author didn't need to state it. But I rather wonder if maybe this second appearance isn't more about simply confirming that a miracle was performed. A skeptical audience, or even the farmer himself, might assume that the first vision was just a dream, and winning the lawsuit was a coincidence. But now, the second vision provides confirmation that Mother Mary really was at work. We're not told that the farmer was harboring doubts about his first vision or anything, but it strikes me as a plausible narrative reason for the second vision, and maybe the motivating details just dropped out of the story in the retelling. All that takes for granted that there is an authentic experience, if only a dream experience, at the root of this anecdote. On the one hand, why not? If you posit that the visions are dreams, then there's nothing supernatural involved in the action of the narrative, other than justice actually being done in London. On the other hand, though, this story is markedly lacking in details. The fact that the farmer is unnamed isn't surprising, but he's not even assigned to a specific location, which definitely smacks of second- or third-hand storytelling at best. At which point, many would say we might as well just treat it as fiction. Though, in that case, you'd think it would fit the conventional patterns a bit better. And speaking of breaking literary patterns, let's get to the vision of the vicar of Domini, Sir James, Dominus Jacobus in the manuscript. Uh, and that's one of those name conversions I keep getting surprised by, that James is equivalent to Jacob. Charles being Carolus and thence Carolingian, no problem. But James to Jacobean is just something I still have to actively work to recall before it clicks in for some reason. Anyway, we start this story with the name and address of the visionary, along with assurances that he shared this story with many people many times, which all creates an aura of authenticity. It's a dream vision, but one with a kind of witness, James's roommate, the delightfully named William Wilde. And you shouldn't necessarily read too much into that living situation. Uh, homosocial bed sharing, especially among young people, was not uncommon. Um, but 
At the same time, the narrow escape from hell vision that this scene frames and the specific details about William Wilde being comely and wanton, those are also suggestive. So I don't know. On the one hand, it would be interesting to look at this story as perhaps a medieval scared straight narrative, so to speak, uh, and approach it through the lens of queer theory. But on the other hand, going well, there's two men in bed, must be gay. Um, that also sounds a lot like projecting modern homophobia back onto medieval culture. Uh, there seem to be hazards to both approaches. Um, I'd be interested to hear how others of you take this situation. Uh, tweet me your thoughts at MDT Podcast. Setting that aside, then, I'll focus in on a different element of the narrative structure. James's dream vision is not just a dream vision or dream visitation like the farmer had, it is essentially a form of near-death experience. It is a trip into the afterlife, or at least the vestibule of the afterlife. In her book, Other World Journeys, Accounts of Near-Death Experiences in Medieval and Modern Times, Carol Zaleski approaches this kind of experience as a narrative phenomenon. Whatever quote, real experience lies behind it, be it spiritual or biological, it is something you find narrated across almost every culture and time period, and as such, it provides a great point of cross-cultural analysis. It has some central features that are almost always present in some form, um, but these are inflected through specific cultural lenses, and you'll find alongside them other culturally specific elements. Zaleski outlines the medieval Christian recipe for such a journey as starting with the departure of the soul from the body, though there are some stories where one physically travels into the other world space. This departure usually leaves the body appearing dead or nearly dead, which is to say comatose, uh, and there's a whole discussion to be had about the gray area of existence between life and death in medieval perceptions. It was not as sharp a distinction as we usually make now, and the scene with Miracle Max in The Princess Bride is actually not that far off the mark from a medieval medical opinion. He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Indeed, near-death experiences are sometimes used as evidence by medieval philosophers and physicians that there are two kinds of soul, the divine soul, the anima, and the merely animal spirit, the spiritus. In modern terms, these loosely correspond to the higher brain functions on the one hand and the autonomic nervous system on the other. Uh, so the soul, the anima, can leave the body and visit the other world while the spiritus remains behind, keeping the body alive but without a reasoning mind. This is also how the doctrine of animals not having souls plays out. Animals have a spiritus, the breath of life, but they don't have an anima, you know, the image of God that is supposed to reside uniquely in human beings. James does not seem to leave a death-like corpse. The fact that William Wilde finds him thrashing around like someone having a nightmare indicates this. 
that would seem to steer us away from taking this as an otherworld journey and just view it more as a cautionary vision. Except that part of the story is that James purportedly awoke with the roll of hellish parchment clasped in his hands as proof of a kind of real encounter. It's not unusual in these kinds of stories for people to return from such an out-of-body experience with physical evidence, but this most commonly takes the form of marks on their body, or heavenly or infernal odors emanating from around them. Bringing back an actual artifact is pretty exceptional. James's journey is also unconventional in regard to the second common narrative feature of these experiences, which is the presence of a guide. Strictly speaking, you could say that the two demons he finds himself being hauled away by are guides. Uh, Guides need not always be beneficent, though they usually are. The figure that fits the common appearance of the guide in medieval visions is Mary, and she does ultimately fulfill the guide's typical function of serving as a protector of the traveler. But she only shows up at the end and doesn't do any actual guiding, so again, it's an exception to the normal structure. The nature of the guide also provides a point of cultural comparison. Seleski points out that in medieval narratives, the guide is often figured as a patron or lord over the soul, someone to whom the traveler owes reverence or service, and that's precisely what we see between Mary and James. It's a very hierarchical and feudal kind of relationship that well reflects medieval social structure. Modern, Western near-death experiences also commonly feature a guide, but these days they're less hierarchical. Uh, They are usually family members or deceased friends, reflecting relationships with a less transactional kind of support and care. Our third narrative feature of these otherworld journeys is also a bit strangely truncated in this story. Uh, This is the journey part of the otherworld journey, There's often a bit of sightseeing with locations explained by the guide. There's a path to be taken, which is usually loaded with symbolic imagery. James just gets dragged eastward a bit towards a pit of fire, and then the heavenly tribunal shows up and holds court right there on the spot. This story is not a tour of the afterlife, uh, like many others are. James is on much more traditional ground with the remaining elements, however. The next two do kind of blend together, Uh, There are usually obstacles to be overcome or traversed, uh, such as rivers, walls of fire, mires, perilous bridges, challenges that seem strikingly reminiscent of the travails of knights on adventures in courtly romance. Though, that said, rivers, bridges, and fire especially are otherworld motifs you find frequently repeated across cultures. The bridge is often associated with a trial, with a determination of one's worth and which part of the afterlife one is destined for. We don't have the bridge in James's vision, but we do have the trial. And that also covers the fifth element, which in this case is not love or Mila Jovovich, uh, but is rather an encounter with one's deeds. The image of the book or roll of deeds is a common one, and we have it here. The evaluation can take many forms, from the weighing of the heart in Egyptian mythology to the courtroom drama we have here. And this kind of trial, where demons specifically act as prosecutors, arguing that the traveler's soul should be damned, is a distinctly medieval motif. Uh, You see it in other world journeys, 
but it also pops up in the mystery plays and allegories. This episode is a bit unusual in the redemption of the soul not coming at the climax of the trial, but afterwards. And frankly, the theology there gets pretty weird. Uh, Mary tells James that his damnation cannot be revoked, but then allows him to erase the record of his bad deeds, and so he's saved from hell. So the sentence wasn't final after all? Uh, This kind of inconsistency feels to me like an authentic representation of dream logic, and kind of supports the idea that this is at least a fairly genuine account of the story James was telling people, because otherwise you'd expect the story to have been refined and brought into conformity with the broader tradition and orthodox theology. Oh, and for completeness's sake, the final standard narrative element of the Otherworld journey is the return, which generally emphasizes the traveler's narration of his or her experience to others and the interpretation of that experience. This is where evidence of the experience really happening is revealed, uh, which we already talked about with the miraculously materializing role of deeds. James's return is pretty conventional, with the exception of the role and the fact that he was never perceived by those around him as actually being dead, uh, only as having a nightmare. And to step back to our larger topic here, this is another place where the representation of Mary is very strange. I mean, yes, it all works out in the end, but she shows up late, and maybe not even late, because that implies she was intending to be there at all, uh, and the story does not make that clear. If anything, it seems more like James just gets lucky that she happens to be passing by as he's being dragged away to eternal punishment. Like I said before, I can't imagine a professional hagiographer letting this kind of image of Mary get through the editing process. So that remains something we can thank the Lanarkost Chronicle for, in its gossipy commitment to including every curious thing that came within its chronicler's hearing. All right, our riddle this episode relates to one of Mary's principal attributes. It is, I am a virgin woman and a virgin woman's child, and being a virgin woman, I bring forth every year. So take a moment to ponder it, if you like. Okay, this is a riddle from the so-called Greek anthology, or the Palatine anthology, a collection of a huge variety of poetry, including riddles and enigmata, some of which go right back to classical antiquity, and some of which were incorporated later. The Palatine manuscript dates from the 10th century CE, which provides a lot of time for accumulating material. The translation of this riddle is by W.R. Patton, and the answer is, quote, a palm or date. The fruit-bearing palm is called virgin because it has only female flowers. If it seems at all surprising that there was an awareness of sex differences in plants in antiquity, well, Theophrastus addresses it quite plainly in his botanical writings of the 4th century BCE. So, yes, we've known about that for a long time. And it is something that any society that's deeply involved in the cultivation of fruit trees especially would get an inkling of just through the hands-on experience of working with those kinds of plants. And that's a nice springtime note to end on. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Until then, you can get more information, including bibliographic references, for this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me with comments or queries at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or you can chat with me on Twitter at MDTPodcast. Also, a bit of Patreon news. 
Uh, at the start of the month, our Patreon patrons got a little behind-the-scenes bonus feature in the form of a collection of bloopers that I've saved from throughout the recording history of the show. And earlier this year, I posted just for patrons a commentary track for the 1981 film Dragon Slayer, which, this month, is back up for free streaming to Amazon Prime members, uh, in the U.S. at least. I can't vouch for other markets. So, if you haven't checked out the commentary track yet, and you've got Amazon Prime, well, now you have easy access to the movie, uh, at least for the time being. If you would like to become a patron of the show and get access to all of this bonus content, uh, you can become one easily at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. A donation of just a dollar a month gets you immediate access to all the Patreon content posted so far, and you can cancel at any time. So you can give what you can, stop whenever you need to, and you can start giving again later if you feel so moved. And lastly, spring being a time when longin folk to goin on pilgrimages, this May I will again be winding my way up, uh, not to Canterbury, but to Kalamazoo, to the International Congress on Medieval Studies. I hope I might see some of you there. Uh, it's always a lot of fun. Until next time, may your otherworld journeys all be well-guided tours, and thanks for listening.